This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. My old boss, and why be one of the top 100 strawberry breeders when I can be one of the top 10 raspberry breeders? And I had that mentality when I came here. What could I be top 10 in? When I ran across Hascap, I went, Oh, I could be top 10 of those. Hardly anyone's doing that. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. My name is Stefan Mursky, and I'm an outreach specialist for emerging crops in the state of Wisconsin with UW-Madison Extension. In today's episode, we'll be talking to two experts on hascaps, or honeyberries as they're also known. For the first 25 minutes or so, I talk with Bernice Ingvoldson, who owns and operates the Honeyberry Farm with her husband Jim in the far north town of Bagley, Minnesota, near Bemidji. There they grow about two acres of honeyberries, along with many other alternative fruit crops, like sour cherries, aronias, currants, elderberries, sea berries, goji berries, kiwi, saskatoons, raspberries, and cranberries. A very impressive list for sure. They also sell mail-order live plants through their online nursery at honeyberryusa.com. Fall is a great time to order transplants, so check out their website if you're interested. They also have great resources and information available through their website. It really is a great resource. There'll be a link to their website on the show notes. The second half of this episode is a conversation with Canada's only and one of, one of North America's very few Hascap breeders. Bob Bors, assistant professor of plant sciences at the University of Saskatchewan, has been breeding hascaps since he joined the department and first tasted them in June of 2000. Yes, they were already ripe in June in Saskatchewan. In his words, he became very excited and has yet to calm down. Since then, he has released 10 varieties of hascaps and built up a world-renowned collection of genetic material and the world's best hascap breeding program, winning him awards for his work. His superior selections have given birth to a whole new industry. You can sense his enthusiasm for the crop throughout our conversation. I have to say, I got pretty excited about hascaps after these conversations. I hope you enjoy them as much as I did. Thanks so much, Bernice, for joining us today. Um, can you just uh, describe your farm a little bit? Well, thank you, Stefan. Yes, we are located just a couple hours south of the U.S.-Canadian border and about four and a half hours north of the Twin Cities. So we are in solidly in zone three and our farm um, is set up to grow whatever we can grow in zone three as far as cold hardy fruit and specializing in uh, some of those special berries such as hascap or the honeyberries, tart cherries, currants, and we've actually found out there's a whole lot more we can grow here than we originally thought. So uh, we have a U-Pick, about three acres of U-Pick, and 
our main um, emphasis, though, is uh, mail order nurseries. So we send out plants in the spring and fall for home growers and and commercial growers to uh, plant their own crops. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, how how big is your farm? How how many acres? Well, I guess we have about two hundred twelve acres total, but a good portion of that is allocated to some hay to, for local beef cattle farms, and we only have about, I guess, about three acres of of you pick, three to four acres. Mm -hmm. And so, what um, what portion of those three acres do you grow honeyberries on? We have a well, over about two acres <laughs> okay so it's your primary crop would you yeah, say yeah about half acre of tart cherries and some saskatoons uh, along with currants red white pink and black currants and we have a demo plot with uh, some sea berries so we have quarter acre of elderberries so it's a mishmash a little bit mm -hmm. of everything yeah, as far so... as the nursery goes I, I should say uh we're distributors so we bring in um plants from commercial greenhouses that propagate the plants and then we distribute them to our customers we also do some planting and grow them out some of them out for larger sizes that we can offer our customers and uh, so we have about an acre of that in nursery production okay um so let's get into the the honeyberries a little bit more um what what varieties do you grow well, I have over 50 different varieties in our demo plot, and there are dozens available commercially from several different propagators, but uh, we try and narrow it down so that we don't totally overwhelm the our customers and, um, you know, offering a few early bloomers, mid bloomers, later bloomers, and we'll get into that more in our, in our discussion, but we have about a dozen available that we um, are offering at this point. Okay. And what, what are some of the main differences between varieties? Well, if you look at the genetics, um, well, first of all, honeyberries do grow around the world, uh, in the Northern hemisphere. There are even some here in Northern Minnesota. I imagine there would be some in Northern Wisconsin as well, as well as in Canada. And while we don't use those commercially um, yet, at least there's some breeding research going on with them. Most of the genetics originates from Northern Japan or Russia, Siberia specifically. So the two main differences is the Russian genetic material uh, tends to be more upright growing and more elongated berries. While the Japanese genetics can be an upright or a bushy bush and maybe more round berries. So the Japanese genetics are more uh, suited towards more temperate climates that you would find in the, specifically the island of Hokkaido, uh, where a lot of the genetics comes from, uh, which is more temperate than some of our zone one, two, and three places where we grow, where the Siberian uh, varieties would be more comfortable. So. Hmm. so do you primarily grow the Japanese varieties then? Well, we're zone three. We can grow anything. They're all happy here. Okay. We are. So, yeah, but the Russian ones, because they have a shorter growing season, whenever it warms up in the spring, they shoot out with their 
blooms and they're ready to get going. And so if you plant a Russian variety in a more temperate zone and it gets, you have a warm up in January and then it gets cold again, you, you don't want them to break dormancy too early. So that's where we uh, advise growers to grow the uh, Japanese varieties in zone six through nine, probably. Mm -hmm. So do you send out uh, plant material throughout the entire United States? We do. Yeah. And we uh, usually, well, especially in the fall, would send bare root. And in the springs, mostly bare root. Some of them are potted, uh, kind of diversified, depending where we get our sources from. So the three main sources of breeders uh, would be the um, Canadian varieties from the University of Saskatchewan breeding program. Then there would be um, some of the Russian or Japanese varieties from Lydia Della Fields breeding program in Arkansas and Dr. Maxine Thompson, who is now deceased, uh, her breeding program released several later blooming Japanese varieties. She was located in Oregon. Mm -hmm. So you're sending out um, transplants, correct? And are those uh, like year old? or? Well, yes, either year old or even two year old potted plants, which we would partially bear root depending. <laughs> we wait, we prefer to send them when they're dormant because any plant will transplant better when it's dormant mm -hmm. or totally bare root even. Um, if they're totally dormant, we can totally bare root them for uh, easier shipping. And they look like dead sticks when you get them, but stick them in the ground and you should see some leaves pop out real soon. And so how long do people have to wait um, until they can expect their first crop? Well, we always tell people that you can always get a berry on a year-old branch. If you have one branch, you might get a berry or two. The next year, you have a few more branches. You would get a couple more berries. The third year, you might get a handful. But after that, like the fourth, fifth year, production really ramps up because you will have more branches that will be producing more delicious berries. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about how and where to plant honeyberries. What do they like in terms of Soil conditions, um, soil pH, water, sun, etc. Mm -hmm. Well, they are in the honeysuckle family, so they are not like blueberries. Even though they are a blue-colored berry, they are not a blueberry that likes acidic soil. So you want to plant your honeyberry in um, soil of like 5.5 pH all the way up to 8, 8.5. And um, they like organic matter. If you have a sandy soil that, you know, you have to water them extra. They have shallow roots, so you want to clear away any of the uh, encroaching grass or, or weeds. And other than that, it's pretty simple. Dig a hole, stick them in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Usually they take off really good. So they're not a high maintenance plant. They basically fend for themselves pretty well. Well, yeah, if, if you just give, give them a chance the first few years, especially, but yeah, keeping that encroaching grass away is, is very important since honeyberries do have shallow roots. And uh, as far as predators, the, the deer, they may go after them when they're young, but after they put on a few years growth, the wood is, uh, the branch is kind of woody and, and not very attractive to deer. So that's another bonus. Uh, rabbits, if they're really hungry in the winter, they can go after them, but uh, but yeah, they're they're pretty good rigorous. And since they're on their own roots, they will just grow back more branches the next year. Okay. 
So they sometimes help you do a little bit of pruning. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we like to look at it. Yeah. Um, I guess while we're on the subject, let's just talk a little bit more about pests and diseases. Do you, um, you know, besides the, uh, the mammals we just talked about, are there insect pests or any other d diseases that you guys have to deal with? They're quite disease resistant, I would say. Uh, some of the varieties are a little bit more susceptible to powdery mildew. And, uh, but since they blossom and fruit so early in the season, um, as summer wears on, if, if the leaves do uh, get some mildew, they will be going dormant soon anyways, and just come back good the next year. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so how, how big do these plants actually get? What is your plant spacing? <laughs> well, some varieties, the smallest varieties are kind of slow growers and, you know, after 10 years, they're still only a couple feet tall. Uh, but the ones that we like to promote would be more like five foot tall bushes with about five foot spacing and, uh, yeah, you know, getting five to 10 pounds of fruit per bush at that age of maturity. Mm -hmm. so other varieties that can grow, we have some out there that are 10, 12 feet tall and just about as wide. But that's after 10, 12 years with no pruning. Okay. So five feet uh, within the row, um, how far are your rows apart from each other? Well, in our orchard, we have 10 feet spacing in one plot, which at this point, some of the rows are pretty, you can hardly walk through them if we, because we haven't pruned some of the rows and part of it is just to see how, how big they will get. Uh, and part of it is just uh, keeping up with the maintenance. Uh, so I would recommend actually wider than spacing than 10 feet, uh, like 14 feet mm. or other newer patches is, has wider spacing. It depends on the equipment that you're going to be using for the home gardener. Yeah. 10, 12 feet should be adequate. Mm -hmm. Do you do uh, regular annual pruning on your plants? Not until they're older and it depends on the variety the japanese need a little bit more renewal pruning uh whereas the russian varieties they just keep growing and growing and growing and then um at some point you might just want to cut them off a foot uh, from the ground and it sacrifices a year of growth but then you will have a rejuvenated rejuvenated plant mm -hmm. um so let's talk a little bit about harvesting are you um, harvesting yeah. by hand or do you have uh, some piece of machine that you're driving and, and doing harvesting with? Well, it all depends on the scale of farming that you're doing for the home gardener. Um, one bush, some people just like to get out there and hand pick and they call it their therapy. Yeah. It is very lovely, but uh, you know, beyond a bush or two, then uh, people start to think about maybe better ways, little faster ways to, to pick, harvest these. So then we move to the shake and drop and it can be as simple as just putting a, a large tub underneath and swatting the bushes with your hand and the berries will drop in. And we've experimented with all sorts of, of ways to clean the berries. Uh, we like to take a leaf blower and just blow some of the leaves off. And then the next scale up is what we call more like the cottage producer, uh, you know, up to an acre. So then we would move to, you know, putting a tarp on the ground. And we've actually 
acquired a couple olive harvesters that have mechanical fingers on the end of a rod that will shake the bush gently and drop the berries and it's quite a lightweight apparatus um yeah so we like to wow. use that for when we're harvesting uh you know a couple thousand pounds but beyond yeah. that you would want to definitely move up to a, um, like a blueberry picker type machine uh-huh okay um so the berries will actually drop off the the bushes once they're ripe is, is that true yes they do so that is a pro and a con the pro is that <laughs> you can drop them and harvest mm -hmm. them easily and the con is uh some of them start dropping before your others if they're if it's an uneven ripening variety then uh some of them and some of them may drop in the wind so it's always a good idea to put something down keep your ground underneath clear so uh, if they do drop, you can always gather them daily, whatever drops. And uh, at some point, just decide that they're going to harvest the whole bush. So on your scale, what, what type of harvesting equipment are you using? Well, since we have a couple acres, we do have the uh, olive harvesters that we use. And mm -hmm. we, we use leaf blowers to remove the debris. Okay. Are, how fragile are these berries? I mean, Very fragile, which is why... Okay. You don't see them on your grocery uh, shelf or on uh, <laughs> your fresh produce shelf. Now, we do supply a couple of our local um, stores, supermarkets in the summer with fresh berries. But because the skin is so thin, they can be damaged very easily. And then the berry juice escapes. And it's, uh, yeah, you can think of sort of like a raspberry, but even maybe a little bit more. Uh, mm -hmm tender than raspberries but uh, they're very suitable for you know farmers markets and um, direct you know daily we pick and sell pre-picked berries uh, you know they have a shelf life I'd say five six days mm -hmm. um, usually if they're kept chilled and, mm -hmm. um, so I was going to ask um, how do you know when the berries are ripe um, what, what kind of signs do you look for Oh, that's a great question, Stefan. So most of the varieties uh, turn uh, dark purplish when they're ripe, but uh, they can turn purple and not be ripe for another two, three weeks. So they'll be green and then turn actually a light purple and then overnight they get a little bit darker and like the second day there'll be a dark purple on the outside, but um, you bite into them and it still uh, does not have a very palatable taste but uh as a fruit ripens on the bush the sugars will build up in the fruit and so we recommend two to three weeks that people wait until they pick but how do you know when they're ready you basically you taste one and and uh, if you like it then pick it if not leave them on for another few days yeah yeah so let's talk a little bit about the the, the, the nutrition of the berries and and the flavor, um, can you just like describe what the flavor is like? Well, I just tell people, think of all your favorite berries, mix them together. And maybe that's what uh, the honeyberry will taste like. Huh. You know, throw in some raspberries and grapes and blueberries and, and um, kiwi maybe. And it's a zinging. Now they're called honeyberries, not because they're super sweet like honey, but because they are a honeysuckle, but, uh, you know, if 
you find them a little tart, there's no reason why you can't put in a little honey or, or just some sugar. And for, you know, honestly, of all the jams that I make of all our berries, I'd say the honey berry is hands down the number one preferred jam. If wow. I put, yeah. Yeah. There's just something, there's something about the berry that makes your body feel good and it tastes so good. Uh, speaking huh. about, you know, the nutritional profile, it's very high in vitamin C and not to mention all the antioxidants. And yeah, I was reading about mm-hmm. the amount of antioxidants and it seems like it's much higher than even the next closest berry. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there really is a fantastic uh, nutritional profile to this berry, but, and, mm-hmm. but the amazing thing is, is really how good it, it tastes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's dive into the, uh, your markets a little bit. So um, you mentioned that you have a pick farm. So that's obviously one way that you sell the berries. Um, what, what other, what other markets do you have? Well, we are able to shake and drop, uh, you know, several hundred up to a couple thousand pounds, depending on the year and, um, and how much we have sold via UPIC and how much we, uh, decide to harvest ourselves that we put in to four or five gallon buckets, stick them in the freezer. And then we have jam makers that, uh, have caught on to how much their customers really like the, this this flavor and we've sold to some wineries and breweries um it's very versatile and there's a lot of potential there and it's just you know keep getting the word out yeah interesting so that this berry is used to flavor beer and wine and and probably give it some color too fantastic color yeah little burgundy reddish color mm-hmm. hmm. oh i forgot to mention ice cream oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, there's there's huge potential for that. Interesting. Do you make ice cream then and, and sell it or uh well I do, you know, we make our own homemade ice cream once in a while and yeah. uh drizzle the the topping over top of it. And yeah, I, when I make my jam, I call it a jam topping because it goes just as well on pancakes and toast, ice cream. I even use it as a dipping sauce for egg rolls for Chinese food. So it's it's uh-huh. a super versatile and just waiting mm-hmm. there for people to discover it. Yeah. And so what kind of price are you getting from your berries? You know, 10 years ago, we started out at $5 a pound and because it was a very exotic berry and um, very few people had, you know, were able to offer it at that point. And it's still, um, we're one of the few you picks in Northern Minnesota, but uh We've kept our price at $5, which we've had increased production and uh, we're still happy with that at this point. Uh, other farms have, have raised their price and we try and keep it in line with other, you know, maybe specialty crops like raspberries that would be mm-hmm. handpicked. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think we've covered a lot. Um, so just to kind of wrap things up, is there a plug that you would make for people to start growing honeyberries? I mean, everything that you've said so far sounds like it's a pretty easy crop to grow and the taste is is really good. So tell me what's not to like about it. Well, here, here's, I guess the caveat here is the birds 
like them very, very much. So be prepared to net them. Mm. Otherwise, uh, you will be sharing them. <laughs> and um, the cedar wax wings are the berry's worst predator, I think. Mm -hmm. They just absolutely love them. So um, that is a serious consideration is how you're going to keep the, the birds away. What strategies do you use? Um, is it just bird netting or do you have others? Mm -hmm. For the home gardener, yeah, definitely. I would say invest in a good uh, bird netting that you suspend away from the bush. Otherwise, the birds can sit on the net and poke through the net. So mm -hmm. you want to have more of a cage there. At our home farm, uh, we have one site that is uh, quite out in the open and we do have overhead netting there. It's uh, about half an acre of overhead netting. At another site, we have about an acre and we share with the birds. We have a Russian variety that's tall, upright growing with smaller berries that we share with the birds. And um, thankfully, by the time uh, some of the later ripening varieties ripen, uh, they've moved on and they found uh, their migration path has taken them elsewhere for the most part. The And there's we have enough uh, with the whole acre to share with the local robins and other birds, <laughs> birds that are resident here. So That's generous of you. <laughs> well, thanks, Bernice. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today about honeyberries. Um, and you have a you and your husband have a great website, um, Honeyberry USA dot com right and um that's it yes i i yeah. just you know 12 years ago when i started learning about this i didn't know anything about them and i just put i say i put my brain on on our website so i tried to put everything i'd learn on to share with people and i welcome feedback and input from other growers from around the country as well and mm -hmm. uh, we have a facebook group it's uh the hascap honey berry grower facebook group and there's a lot of good conversation discussion going on there as well great and now we're going to continue on the topic of has caps with dr bob Bors of the university of saskatchewan so i'll just have uh, bob introduce himself a little bit and talk about his breeding program uh, but my first question bob for you is honeyberries or has caps what do you call it well i call it has cap uh, because that's actually the oldest wor word in the world for this crop. Hmm. The uh, Ainu people of Japan, of Hokkaido, called it that, and they were the first ones. We think they had hundreds of years of using it before the rest of the world knew about it. Huh. And wow. honeyberries is kind of, they're not, they're not, they don't look like honey. They don't taste like honey. And I think there's actually a tropical plant called a honeyberry also, so... Huh. I don't like that as much, but okay, okay. So that's we'll probably call the it. newest word for it. Okay, perhaps the old and yeah, maybe more of a a marketing name. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll call it has caps for this conversation. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, can you just give a little background on your breeding program and, and your work? Well, the breeding program is uh, now one hundred and one years old. Wow. And it's, I think it's the northernmost breeding program in North America for most of the crops we're breeding. Like we're colder than all the other breeding programs in Canada. 
Although there might be an amateur north of us doing apples or somebody here and there. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've been here since uh, 1999. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted my old boss, I actually grew up in Maryland mm -hmm. and worked for a breeder who was a strawberry raspberry breeder who dropped strawberries and said, uh, why be one of the top 100 strawberry breeders when I can be one of the top 10 raspberry breeders? <laughs> and I had that mentality when I came here, what could I be top 10 in <laughs> that no one's doing much in, right? Uh -huh. Even though my PhD was on strawberry breeding, um, when I ran across the sour cherries and the hascap, I went, Oh, I could be top 10 of those. Hardly anyone's doing that. <laughs> Are there even but, 10, 10 breeders working on hascaps around the world? Uh, in Russia, there would be. Okay. But there, there may be actually close to 10 stations in Russia that have bred it. There may, maybe they're not all active now. Okay. But there's only one in Canada. And I think there's only one left in the U.S. right now. But maybe okay. somebody's breeding it somewhere else but okay all yeah. right and so so what is it that you're breeding for what are kind of your objectives well when we first got hascap we had only four varieties when i got here and they just started fruiting i think they were planted two years before i came here and then we noticed the first year i was here and started breeding in uh 2001 um the for early varieties, berries weighed about a gram. They were thin as a pencil, like the top part of a pencil, the metal part. Hmm. They're about that size. They all fruited like the third week in June. Hmm. And so I was looking for mechanical harvesting. Hmm. And the Japanese version was a different plant. Uh, uneven ripening, round berries, but it ripened two weeks or more later than the Russian stuff. And by breeding them together, I've gotten a whole assortment that'll set of just the end of June, all of uh, third, fourth week in June, all of July. I've even eaten some in September now, you know, in a cool year. Hmm. So spreading out the harvest to be different weeks in the summer, also uh, blending, the Russian varieties tend to be sour, but have more character. And some of the Japanese ones tend to be sweet, but boring. Mm. And if you breed the two together, you might get that sweet and sour combo. That's, that's nice. Mm. Uh, there's disease resistance. And lately I've been breeding with some that grow much faster. But the original version tasted horrible. Huh. They taste like concentrated tonic water. <laughs> and actually, the first varieties of Hascap in Canada and the US, the Bounet type, were bred as shelter belt plants. And they taste like concentrated tonic water. They were oh, never intended to be eaten. Huh. But uh, nursery they knew they were edible because russians were eating it or something uh but they were eating a better flavored version not what we had in canada and some nurseries called them sweet berry honeysuckles which was a total lie 
They should have called them utterly bitter, horrible honeysuckles would have been a better name. <laughs> but uh, I've been breeding, they grow much faster. So I've been trying to breed them to grow faster and bigger plants with that. But they're not, the, it's in the third generation of breeding. And some of them are no longer, they're boring, not that you have to spit them out immediately upon tasting them. Mm. But the new varieties, the newer varieties have a really good blend of sweet and sour and aroma and much bigger berries. Okay. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about the, the collection at the university? Uh, where, where did you get those varieties? And yeah. Yeah. Well, some I got from Russia that were bitter. But I wrote a polite le letter to the person who was the top ASCAP person. And I listed the newest varieties I saw on a list from all the breeding stations. And the polite letter, I uh, said, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm ordering all the new ones. Please send me what you think I should have. <laughs> and they actually sent me like 15 varieties that tasted great. <laughs> and so that was from the Russian side. Uh, Maxine Thompson in Oregon, who passed away a couple of years ago, I met her at a, a, a scientific meeting of the Hort Society in, that was in Toronto. And she talked about Hascap, and I befriended her. I visited her three times and sent graduate students two times to help her harvest. And she said, I could take whatever cuttings I wanted, but just don't breed something that's more than half mine. <laughs> so I got, she had mainly Japanese material. Okay. And then I got it invited to Japan and they took me around to places where I gathered material. Mm. And then I went across Canada on a sabbatical mm. gathering, I think 1400 plants from across mm. Canada. So we have some of the most uh, diverse collection. Oh, also I befriended the new head of the fruit gene bank who was more of a botanist who loved especially these obscure subspecies like the one that tasted terrible but grew fast mm -hmm. and there were other ones and so he sent me seeds of of this dr sorokin mm. so uh i have i think i have the most diverse collection because i've got the only collection of giant north american ones plus russian and japan material Mm -hmm. Can you so, talk a little bit about the, the differences between the varieties that come from those different regions? Yeah, I, th I think the Russians bred them for the home gardener. And uh, they weren't thinking harvest, mechanical harvesting. They, um, they come off, the fruit come off so easy, you don't actually have to grab each berry. You can, I call it the tickle method one. Your viewers won't see it, but you go like this on the underside of the branches of your fingers and the fruit will drop off. Mm -hmm. Which And they also bred to be the earliest possible berries because mm -hmm. if you're a homeowner, you don't want to be the one on your street to be the last one to get your pass cap. You want it to be the first one. Mm -hmm. But that's not good for mechanical harvesting in orchardists because the berries tend to fall off really quickly when they're ripe. Mm. right whereas the japanese material 
I think had less breeding in it. They had actually big berries in the wild and they tend to ripen unevenly. But both the Japanese and the Russian ones, you can have good tasting ones or poor tasting ones or boring ones. You really, they have an assortment of flavors. The Northern European ones that are like in Norway and Finland and Eastern Russia, those are the ones most likely to taste disgusting. And uh, actually it comes to, it has to come to whether berries were evolved with birds or mammals. Birds, some birds only have like 30 some taste buds. When you taste a wild berry that's bitter, that has tons of antioxidants, but it tastes disgusting. So mammals don't like it, but birds like them. They're usually like little berries that are bite size. So they like the little tiny berries, something like a choke cherry is bite size for them. Mm-hmm. Other, some of the weedy berries, they would eat those. But mammals, especially like uh, deer and stuff, with big nostrils, they have to smell, they often smell where the berries are and go find them and eat them that way. So you get bigger fruit like an apple, you know, something Mm. they could really chomp into better than a little tiny Haskat berry or something. So that's really interesting. that's That's a fun thing to mention, like why some of our berries are small and inedible to us. Mm hmm. But they probably make those birds last a long time because they have loaded with antioxidants that are healthy. <laughs> but you couldn't yeah. get kids to eat those berries. Mm-hmm. You better give them the diluted form of those antioxidants that mm-hmm. aren't so bitter, but taste great. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. the big berries are better for the for us mammals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so how many varieties have you actually released through your breeding program? I think it's up to nine now. Okay. The first ones were actually released as numbers. And I imagined in my mind, well, I'll release the, the five best. And after a few years, the farmers will tell me which is really worthy. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And what I found that was a horrible strategy because everyone had, everyone wanted all of them named. So I, the, my two favorite were Tundra and Borealis, and the other three were Indigo series, Indigo Jam, stuff like that. But I had told, I had actually had farmers over for my first Haskap day, and I told them they could taste these other numbers that I was testing. And I said, in five years, we'll have something worthwhile growing commercially. Mm-hmm. And they all looked at me like I was an idiot. They said, Bob, these taste so much better than what's on the market. If you wait five years, no one will want anything. They'll taste these, either the sour Russian ones or the boring ones at at the time that we had from Japan or that bitter one. Mm -hmm. And uh, these tasted great. But I knew they were too short. They were smaller bushes. So five years later, I had Aurora and and a honeybee as its pollinator. And today, Aurora is the number one variety in the world. Okay. It has more firmness. But then there's the boreal series, which are even later ripening. Okay. So a farmer 
that you know if you're going to go to the expense of buying a harvesting machine you don't want to use it one week of the year mm. you know you want to you you wouldn't want to hire 25 employees for one or two weeks wouldn't it be better to have eight employees that work for six weeks or mm. two months right mm. and they have a steady every week they have so much to harvest and pack in the freezer or whatever so that that makes it logistically for a farmer really good but it also makes it good for gardeners you know a gardener could have some you know an assortment of bushes and have fruit over a longer period yeah so yeah you mentioned that these varieties need pollinizers um yeah. can you just talk a little bit more about the like why they need the pollinizers well, actually, and I tell them I teach a fruit course, close to 80% of all flowering plants, fruits, need cross-pollination. And some of those that don't need cross-pollination, it's only because breeders found the right plants. Like strawberries in the wild, a lot of them are male or female plants, right? But they found the ones that had complete flowers. A lot of the wild raspberries, you had to have two different uh, type of varieties. So in an urban setting where like many people have apple trees, you could plant one apple tree and probably one of your neighbors, neighbors has an apple tree too. So you don't worry about that. The same might be true with plums, but Hascap has to have two cross pollinating ones. Mm. And most people are not aware of the cross-pollination at all, mm. especially if they're in the city. Or if they're in the country, they might grow more than a couple varieties because they want to try different varieties. Mm -hmm. But uh, you really need not only two varieties, but two varieties that bloom at the same time and that have, are genetically compatible, mm -hmm. right? So if you go to a garden center, they might be vaguely aware and say something like, oh, we need two plants. Well, that's not true. If you plant two of the same variety, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. For many crops, having two varieties is going to work. But you could get 20% of the time, like a couple apples don't get a, to get around or a couple has cap or uh, mm -hmm. so a couple black currants aren't going to work. Mm -hmm but it's an oddity but if you're a farmer growing you're going to grow an acre of this stuff you want to be really 100 it's not that 20 percent that aren't compatible so it's yeah. uh i did a lot of research on crossing our varieties with each other probably if you had a russian variety in ours it would be pretty good but it's not 100 certain but it's maybe 80 percent Mm -hmm. Can you say the names of um, like the top varieties that um, you mentioned Aurora and Borealis? Would you say that those would be good performing varieties in Wisconsin? If I were, is, is this mostly commercial growers or? Um, too, or both? I think our listeners probably span the whole, the whole gamut okay. from backyard gardeners to okay. small scale, yeah. maybe a few acres. If I had to choose only two, I would go with Aurora and Beast. 
because those both have higher flavor ratings and they overlap pretty good and they're pretty good production. Mm -hmm. um, but I wouldn't grow any of the older varieties unless you want them for ornamental. The, the original ones, Tundra, Borealis, Indigo Gem, they look very beautiful, but they only get like three or four feet tall mm -hmm. and they don't have as much fruit. Right. They they would look like they would be a, a beautiful hedge mm -hmm. to grow together. Mm -hmm. um, the newer varieties, the boreal series, if you're a commercial grower, they would be extending the season through July. Okay. And I named Boreal Blizzard has the largest berry, and many people think that tastes the best, but maybe they're influenced by the berry being unusually large. They're shaped like a surfboard hmm. and they're like, they're a little bit flattened and they have a really cool look to them. Huh. Uh, and they can be almost three grams. The other ones are like two grams. And like the oh. original ones we started were only one gram. So you can pick them faster, but it's a smaller bush. Okay. But Beauty and the Beast, Boreal Beauty and Boreal Beast are the late, Beast is own, like, pollinates all the other varieties okay and it grows kind of rampant but beauty is something that sometimes is ripened in august for us or last week in july and okay. it is a beautiful berry it's kind of shaped like a heart like it's mm. it's kind of rounded with a heart mm. and it's it actually weighs almost as much as blizzard but yeah so to recap aurora and beast would be my favorite too if you're only going to grow two and they would be uh aurora might come in end of june for us first week in july and beast would be early july to mid july okay and they and, and the beast would pollinize would be a good pollinizer for aurora yeah and also the right. other two boreal series okay very productive and holds on to its fruit much longer than some other ones which is good for mechanical harvesting, right? So are all these varieties that you just mentioned, are they suitable for mechanical harvesting? Yeah, except the earliest one. Okay. I mean, you could, people are mechanically harvesting tundra and indigo gem, and they taste great, but they, early, they take several more years to come into full production. And you're, most harvesters won't harvest the bottom foot of a bush, mm. right? So it's everything two feet up. They'll have fruit often, all Haskell tend to have fruit a year after you plant it, but you might only get 10 berries or 20 berries. Mm -hmm. And it's not worth it to bend over from for harvesting for not commercial operation. But mm -hmm. the homeowner certainly is worthwhile picking mm -hmm. those two berries. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the mechanical harvesting techniques and and what the what the equipment or the machine looks like yeah the um there's two basic differences um one of them is what's called a side i call a sideways harvester it has a um, they have a set of rods like a spindle that go all the way around and the bush goes in but the sideways harvester goes into the middle of a bush and pushes half the branches down over a conveyor belt 
and the spindle with fingers on it shakes the berries off. Mm. And the sideways harvester, the fruit only drops about a foot. So it doesn't get very damaged. And it goes on conveyor belts and there's a fan to blow off the leaves and little scraps of things and it comes out on a conveyor belt, mm. right? That version of the machine is tougher on the plant because it has to bend the branches to like a 45 degree angle. And it's also better if you're pruning your plants to have like an open center. Mm. So the branches are naturally more at a 45 degree angle mm -hmm. and your fruit will be less damaged. But the branches, when they get maybe an inch thick or so, you should prune them out because they might get broken in that machine or something. Mm. The other type of harvester is an upright harvester. And it has two spindles next to each other. You might think of two bottle washers standing upright, but they've got little metal or plastic rods that spin around and vibrate. But those machines can be up to two, two well, we'll go American, two yards tall. And uh, if you had fruit at the five, four, five, six feet mark, it goes splat all the way down and it gets more damaged and bleeding. Mm. But the branches don't have to be bent over. So it's easier on the bushes, but rougher on the berries. Mm. And Haskap tends to be on the soft side of fruit. Although Aurora is considered one of the, the uh, toughest of the fruit on the market now, which is why a lot of the Europeans ranked it as number one. Mm. Uh, but it can only take so much dropping. Like some of the fruit are two and three feet, only dropping a little bit, but some are smashing all the way down. Mm -hmm. And so you got to do something with that fruit right away. Mm -hmm. So when I had to buy a harvester for the university, had to, is it, it was a great joy that actually they gave me the money to do it. We yeah. were imitating harvesters by whacking our hands against branches and having little kids swimming pools to pick up the fruit uh -huh. and then seeing how smashed they were but okay where was i going with this uh, oh uh at that time the saskatoon berry growers which are sometimes known as june berries and in, in the states or service although berry. they ripen in july for us so we hate that name oh it's named after my city so uh, Saskatoon, but the largest commercial operators of Saskatoons were using the side partway harvester because it gave less damage to the fruit, right? We had previously shown our dwarf sour cherries could be harvested. Certain ones could be harvested with that machine if you pruned it right. Mm. So I said, well, the Saskatoon guys, they're harvesting their fruit mid to second or third week in July. And at the time, all the Haskap was before that. Mm. So I was thinking, oh, you could have your Haskap crop with this machine. Then you, the last half of July, you can go for your Saskatoon berries. And then our sour cherries are the first two weeks in August. Mm. So that fills out the whole summer, but you have three crops. But you can also use that machine on raspberries or black currants, but we don't happen to be doing 
too much breeding or breeding on currants and stuff. Mm -hmm. So you can have five crops with that harvesting machine. Yeah. Wow. Um, but people use the upright ones too mm -hmm. uh, for those crops. But the upright ones, you have to thin them to have more narrow rows. Because okay. if the if the plant is wide, like if the plant is is two feet wide, that machine has these little they call them fish plates that go around it. The fruit could drop down the middle of that plant and go on the ground, mm -hmm. and you could get twice as much fruit on the ground. But that machine is cheaper. Mm. So I was going to ask, it, yeah, it, how much yeah. how much do these machines cost roughly? Well. We, the original sideways harvester cost 40000 in 2010. And the company wanted us to have their newest machine, which was now worth 70000 But they souped up a lot of, like they made it harvest berries lower. They had wheels in the back that could move into the bushes. They improved the fan system. So there's a bit of a vacuum that the fruit don't drop as much. Mm. And the other ones, I think in, it depends on where you go. Mm -hmm. uh, that, um, oh, Michigan has that trade show. Have you been to the Great Lakes mm -mm. trade show? I saw no. five different harvesting machines for berries. And some of them, I think, are $200,000 that the tractor is built into the machine okay. and it rides above the row. And then you can have your rows closer together. Okay. And some of them are like the sideways harvester. They open the center up and do both sides though at once. Mm -hmm. I think you can get used ones for like 20,000. Okay. Probably you could go with from Wisconsin, go to the blueberry growers in Michigan and get some cheap ones right. that are used. I know in Canada, the BC blueberry guys automatically get rid of their harvesters after five years or so because they don't ever want it to break down during harvest season mm -hmm. and then the prairie guys buy them and fix them <laughs> like they might give them a new motor they might straighten out all the burnt rod bent rods or replace things in it and yeah. get them to go a few years more or something huh heard of people getting them for ten thousand dollars used but wow i should say economic people say if you got 40 year 40 acres of fruit you definitely better own a harvester because harvesting costs harvesting by hand costs half your expenses as a grower wow 40 you think 40 acres is the threshold well that's what they said i think i think you could do it with less than that or maybe share a harvester between a few friends or something. Yeah. But sharing is sometimes hard to do. Yeah. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about production practices. Um, what kind of row spacing and uh, like plant density would you recommend? Well, originally we like some varieties are quite different on whether they're more upright or not. Like our first ones, they grow way too wide. They actually grow just as fast as some of the fast ones, but I saw a tundra row that was eight feet wide and it was there for almost 20 years. Mm. That was way too terrible. But mm. um, 
we had been saying three to five feet apart, depending on how mechanical harvesting, you really want a solid hedge because the harvesters tend not to get the middle of the bush as well. Mm-hmm. And because they or they drop the middle of the bush. And if you have plants that are well spaced that never touch each other, you have down the middle of the row, you got all this fruit that <clears> might not get harvested as well. So that that's one thing. Another thing is I think most important is not to plant if you've got flat land, don't have any grass near them for the first few years. Keep it bare soil or very minimal grass strip in there because uh, grass really stunts the plants okay. at a young age. Don't mm-hmm. do not take a pasture and plow out a couple feet row to plant your hascap. Mm-hmm. They'll just be totally stunted. Mm-hmm. I've seen farms that have had four-year-old plants that are one foot, one and a half foot tall. Mm-hmm put into a modified pasture even with plastic on it and i've had my bare root on my bare soil four years later they're four feet tall Mm. and now becoming commercial operation and the stunting is amazing when i gathered hascap in the wild across canada wherever there was grass growing like i'd see Oh, I need to, they're in wetlands, right? So I look for black spruce trees that are doing poorly because they're much taller and maybe tamarack and some other species doing poorly. If there was grass growing that, I would rarely find any hascap. But if it was so wet that the grass wouldn't grow, I could find hascap. I like the grass once it's close to full grown. And especially if you're mechanically harvesting because if they're, the berries have some branches that are overladen with fruit that brings them down to the ground and it, you get a lot of rain, you might get mud or dirt on your berries. Mm-hmm. And a lot of growers don't want to wash their fruit. They want it to be high up enough. Mm-hmm. As soon as you wash your fruit, then you got to dry your fruit or they're going to rot really quick. Mm-hmm. So the timing of the grass, I like to have the grass planted maybe part of the season that you know, or at the beginning of the season, you know you're gonna mechanically harvest it. (laughs) Now, some people grow in plastic um, and that's okay. We don't grow plastic at the university except as a demonstration uh, because we change our orchards every decade or so because we're a breeding program. Mm -hmm. We might grow, we might grow 5,000, 3,000 plants from seed and keep five plants, <laughs> right? And so we don't want all that plastic to pull up right. at the end. But many growers like to grow on plastic. Right. Uh, that helps. We tend to do pre-emergent herbicide within the row and then cultivate, but really shallow cultivate between rows. And... Uh, your other space, the row spacing between rows depends on how big your tractor is and your harvesting machine, mm-hmm. which unfortunately you don't know how big, what harvesting machine you're going to get. You're probably not buying at three years or four years 
before you can use it. Mm -hmm. I think it's maybe safe to go 15 feet between rows. Okay. Uh, for your initial planting. Mm -hmm. And uh, don't plant too much until you know, if you're a commercial guy, until you know what you're doing. And you might narrow that if you got one of these better harvesters or something. Okay. But we planted a lot of our rows 13 feet apart. And then the bushes got three, four feet wide. And now our rows are only eight feet apart. Right. And we're running over some of the, some of our tractor wheels are running over some of the plant branches on the edge. Yeah. Yeah, that's important to think about. Um, I guess the other thing is you have to think of in planning is if you have a harvester, how fast, how much turn space you do have at the end of the row. Right. Right. Our sideways harvester is one of the longest harvesters. Hmm. And we didn't plan in some of our early orchards to have enough turning space. Hmm. So we had to run over the last six plants. Oh God. In the row to, to demonstrate that a harvester could work on it. Huh. But now we've got it all figured out. Like we tend to have a row at the end of our our rows, mm -hmm. you know, for going in and out on both ends, and that tends to make enough space. Okay. Huh. Yeah, things you don't think about until you've <laughs> until years down the road. Yeah. Um can you talk a little bit about how you did determine when the berries are ripe because um i know bernice talked about some people they 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 pick them prematurely when they think they're ripe but they're not actually ripe and yes. so she mentioned that that's one reason why has caps may have gotten a little bit of a bad yeah. name yeah the and it's actually it's similar for blueberries that they both look ripe several days or a week before they are ripe on the inside. Mm -hmm. If you bite into the, the berry, um, Hascap has, has very colorful skin that leaches into the middle. And the thinner berries will be red all the way through. Mm -hmm. The really fat berries sometimes have a little, a little bit of green in the middle, but most of it's red. Mm -hmm. And they, if they're unripe, they taste like lawn grass smells. Not that I've ever actually chewed on lawn grass, but if I did chew on it, that's what the flavor I think cascat berries has a grassy flavor when they're not ripe. Okay. Okay. Right. Not, not now, very pleasant. Yeah. And the original Bounet type, which is spelled like bug net. Right. I sometimes call them bug nets. Those are the ones that taste like concentrated tonic oil. Did I bring that up yet? I just talked to somebody in the hallway about it. Yeah. It's yeah. like concentrated tonic water. So they'll always be bad. Okay. They never get better if they have the tonic water flavor, but the grassy flavor disappears. Okay. But that can be a week later, an earlier variety, because if they actually start blooming here, a month before the last frost. Wow. They can take minus seven Celsius, which do you have to, I, I grew up <laughs> in the States, but I only know Celsius for negative temperatures. 
yeah i can't do the Fahrenheit for warmer temperatures <laughs> like 25 degrees or something or 27 yeah that could be it's several most fruits you go 30 degrees and they're dead the mm -hmm. they're dead these can go a little colder than that mm -hmm. and usually our last frost-free date in Saskatchewan is around June 1st. And that's when the earliest varieties are starting to change color. Wow. So they're totally uh, tolerant. They're more tolerant to freezing conditions. Hmm. They say they can take minus 10 Celsius if it's not windy. Because hmm. the they leaf out at the same time the flowers are blooming. So that can hold a little bit warmer air in the bush. But if it's windy, forget it. Or if it's a lot of misty or high humidity, it might not. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had issues with uh, poor fruit set because the flowers froze out or weather conditions just were not optimal? Yes, I think um, some years when we've had too much rain for a whole week, one year, our Russian varieties didn't have anything. Mm. Like it just was weird that it it rained a lot. Uh, it may be too windy. Like mm. bees don't like it to be windy, and if you don't have a shelter belt, it's more likely that you'll have bad wind. Mm. The other thing about that's really kind of bizarre about Hascap is each berry actually has two flowers. If you were to cut cut them across, cut them open at the right time, you'd actually see within the Hascat berry is actually two separate berries, huh. right? They originate from two flowers, and then they have a sheath that covers the two berries and make it look like one. Huh. But what happens is each flower tends to open on a different day. Mm. One side opens. Like, and I've got photos of these of a full open flower and the other one's half open. Mm. So you can get a scenario where one flower of the berry opened one day and the next flower, it was rainy or windy and it didn't get pollinated. Mm. And then instead of having a roundish berry or a surfboard one, you get a crescent shaped berry because huh. the side that didn't get pollinated didn't grow. And the side that got pollinated made like a half moon. Wow. Right? Interesting. And I know there's a variety uh, from some other program that has a crescent in the name. And I wonder if it's notorious for not getting pollinated somehow. Interesting. Yeah, wow. it's kind of huh. fun. So uh Bad crop because, well, one of our growers had minus 10 and windy and they froze out. Mm. Uh, poor pollination if you don't have enough bees. This year, I think we had too many hascap fields mm. and we rented or we bought bumblebee hives and we put them in our variety trial and in our nursery area where we screen our seedlings for what the fruit looked like before we plant them. Like we have them growing in pots. Mm -hmm. The fields closest to where we had our bumblebees had normal production, but we had two fields in the far north of our fields. We have 80 acres about mm -hmm. of 
mostly fruit in our program. The northern fields farthest from all the hives had extremely poor set this year. Mm. And so I think we should have had, we should have bought more bumblebee hives. Mm. So they we had a failure so far, right? Yeah. But we really didn't care about those. We already evaluated those fields and right. weren't paying attention to them. Right. Um, we just have a few minutes left, but I definitely want to talk about uh, yield potential on some of these varieties. How many pounds, or you probably, you work in kilograms, can you expect in an average year? Well, when we were studying, um, I studied yield of some of our, our varieties and how big the bushes were. So a cubic meter, which would be nine square feet, tended to yield close to a kilo of fruit. Okay. So that would be 2.12 pounds or something. Yeah, 2.2, I think. 2.2 or something. Yeah, 2.2. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So the bigger the bush, the larger ones. Um, I think some of the newer varieties you could get six or seven pounds eventually. Um, in Poland, which uh, there's a uh, one of the largest propagators of Hascap in Poland is growing our varieties and Russian ones. And they also have great yield data. Hmm. And Boreal Beauty was close to 60% or so more yield than the next best variety. Wow. And they were getting like three kilos at a young age. And wow. everything else was getting two kilos, I think at age three or four. That we've never got that much yield. Huh. But all our newer varieties are more productive than our older varieties mm -hmm. by far. Mm -hmm. And they the Russian varieties for us in our trial were much they took an extra couple of years to come into production. Mm -hmm. But ours were bred under our conditions, which Right. At the University of Saskatchewan, we have rather high pH soils, mm. like seven, 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 nine. Um, mm. One of my graduate students did a pH study on Hascap in hydroponics, mm. and they actually, the bushes grew much better under low pH, like 5.5. They still looked healthy at eight, huh. right? Uh, but that was in hydroponics, which is the perfect balance of everything a plant needs. Right. When I went in, in a soil survey map around Saskatchewan, uh, above 7.9, I never found a good orchard. I never found anything good at eight. Hmm. I found bad orchards at all pH levels. <laughs> but uh, some of the better ones tended to be in the sick zone. So... Okay. It's more adaptable than blueberries. Right. Uh, and I wonder if the Russian varieties were bled, bred at lower pH than ours or something. Huh. Okay. But ours, they weren't coming into production as much as ours earlier okay. on. Okay. So um, just to kind of wrap things up, um, what do you see as the market potential for Hascaps? Um, it, it, it seems like they're growing in popularity, maybe a little bit. Um, 
where yeah where do you see the the future for hascaps well they they do have a relatively short harvest window mm. and, but they can be used for a lot of products like uh you can make wine with them mm. i think better than any grape we could grow in saskatchewan mm. right mm-hmm. in fact we we fooled some professors from france who didn't realize it was hascap wine they were trying they thought it was red wine and when the translation got they found out it was hascap they wrote down the genus and species name in their notebooks oh that's funny but it's great and it has the good varieties taste really good mm-hmm. they're great in jam they're great in pastries added to yogurt in baked goods pies they make a mushy pie but so do other fruits make mushy looking pies, perhaps mm-hmm. make lemon meringue pie. So they're great for a lot of things. A lot of little babies, unfettered un, uh, by prejudice, love Haskell berries. Hmm. They're fresh. They're also super high in nutraceuticals. Uh, that I think that double berry has, it's all the nutraceuticals are in skins. Hmm. And hascap skins, like if you take a frozen hascap berry, the skins dissolve in your mouth. So we're not talking about skins that are tough to chew through or anything. Okay. But all those skins have nutraceuticals and it has a double layer of skin inside the two berries in the sheath. Interesting. So they have triple the the skin of a blueberry of the same weight. Mm -hmm. But they're also a northern plant that has a lot of stress. So they naturally produce a lot of nutraceuticals mm-hmm. and uh, if they have too much nutraceuticals they taste disgusting but uh, <laughs> the average hascap is better than the has more nutraceuticals than the average blueberry but you can actually find a blueberry that's better than the worst hascap right uh-huh. uh, i there were people going crazy saying hascap is twice as good as blueberries and then they got bored saying three times four times better well you'd have to find the worst blueberry and the best hascap to find it four times better Uh but i was going around telling people hascap is three times better than hascap because the (laughs) the best hascap is three times better than the worst one but we need a little more research on the what the health value is because we just know a general range for hascap we don't know for all of them, what specific variety is the health value? But right. uh, part of the future we think Hascap is good is we think that's why blueberries took off because there was a lot of research not only done to make them taste better and shelf life and stuff, but they also did a lot of health value research on blueberries, huh. right? So yep. people are willing to pay more for a blueberry knowing that it not only tastes good but it's good for you and the same thing was with hascap it's one of the more nutritious berries we have yeah and it can taste really good too Mm -hmm. yeah it seems like hascaps have a lot going for them and uh maybe that they're an underrated crop and and have a lot of potential um i mean there's they're healthy they're adaptable you can grow them in a lot of different environments uh, there may be a, a climate smart uh, plant to right. grow. 
um, early maturing. So yeah, I hope some people who uh, listening to this will decide to grow has caps um, and uh, discover them for themselves. But is there any any final words uh, that you want to share? Well, they really are a northern crop. Mm. So uh, if you grow, you're Wisconsin, right? Right. Uh, you grow them in Wisconsin, your neighbors to the south are going to have a hard time. Like they won't be able to grow it. And I've had people from Texas call me sound very disappointed when I say, sorry, you can't grow that here. I'm so uh. used to thinking the other way of what. I can't grow in Saskatchewan, but to have something I can grow that they can't in the warmer areas. Right. And it's just a fun crop to have uh, something like this. That to have a crop earlier than straw, like we have Hascap that grow that ripen before, during, and after the June bearing, well, for their, us, the July bearing strawberries. Okay. So that's. As soon as you get something earlier, that's cash flow coming in. Right. Earlier in the season, people want that. Right. Well, I'm excited about them. I've never tried one before, but I I really want to. Yeah, get get some from Burnus. She probably makes jam or something. She did. She actually offered to send me a jar of her jam after our conversation. Oh, okay. So. Well, thank you so much, Bob. This was really uh, insightful and. Um, I'm so glad you're able to make the time to talk to us about Hascaps. After my conversation with Bob, he mentioned to me that he puts on an annual Hascap school, which is a two-day event. Um, the first day is classroom lectures, and the second day is out in the field. Um, and this, uh, this event attracts people from, from all over, including the states. And next year's event in 2023 might be happening in Idaho. So if you're interested in that, um, I will put a link in the show notes to the University of Saskatchewan Fruit Breeding Program webpage, where you'll be able to find out more information about this event and other research updates on Hascaps. I also wanted to mention that I did receive a jar of honeyberry jam. And yes, the label actually says Honeyberry rather than Hascap from Burnus. The jam really is as good as she made it out to be. So I encourage you all to try it. You can order it from their website at honeyberryusa.com or maybe find it at your farmer's market, co-op, or grocery store if you're lucky. Thanks again for listening. Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.